Welcome to Tea with PILPG. I'm Paul Williams, the president and founder of the Public International Law and Policy Group, PILPG for short. Today in our series of talks on professional excellence, we will be discussing how you can influence U.S. policy in 900 words by publishing an op-ed. We'll be enjoying a cup of warm honey tea. Joining me today are Mina, Orga, and Elisa. Why don't you introduce yourselves? Thanks, Paul. I'm Mina, and I'm getting my bachelor's degree at Columbia University. I've also worked as an investigations intern at the New York State Division of Human Rights, as well as a research intern at an Ethiopian NGO. I've been told that being published is a really important step to being considered an expert in a topic, so I'm interested in the possibility of writing an op-ed. Great. Orga. Hi, I'm Orga. I'm getting my Master of Public Policy degree at Harvard Kennedy School and my JD degree at Georgetown Law School. I've also worked for the United Nations in Lebanon and for the Embassy of Haiti in Washington, D.C. I would really love to write an op-ed someday and, and have my opinion heard, and so I'm taking notes today. Excellent. Alisa? Hi, I'm Alyssa. I'm getting my bachelor's degree at University of Chicago, and I've previously worked as an intern for the civil rights organization and worked on the training team for a nonprofit designed to empower and train high school students on global issues. It hadn't really occurred to me that I could write an op-ed, but I'm really intrigued. Where do we start? Well, let's start first with understanding why op-eds are so valuable. You think about newspapers, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times, Chicago Tribune, and you realize that 95% of all of the ink in those newspapers are generated by the employees of those newspapers, reporters and then the editors of the newspapers. To get space on one of these newspapers with their excellence, with their distribution, and with their reputation is intensely, intensely valuable if you're trying to influence U.S. policy. And what an op-ed actually stands for is opposite the editorial page. In a sense, it's the most coveted page in the newspaper and the only page that is open to non-staff members of that newspaper. So, Paul, the title of this podcast seems to imply we can change or influence U.S. policy in 900 words or less. Really? And why 900 words? When anybody ever asks you in the future, what is your favorite number? The answer is always 900. <laughs> you want to get that number in your head. Because oftentimes people think that if I'm going to influence policy, I need to write a book, I need to write a white paper. And you should probably write a book and you should probably write a white paper at some point in your life. But people are actually going to read your 900-word op-ed. Eh, they may or may not read your book. They'll pretend to read your white paper. But that's how individuals consume information. The policymakers, the policy shapers, have very limited time, very limited resources. And so you need to make your compelling case for humanitarian intervention in Syria, for interpretation of the Iranian nuclear arms deal, for a readjustment of our pivot of our relationship from Europe to Asia. You've got to be able to make that argument in 900 words and less. And the reason why it's influential is a tradition that exists in the U.S. government, and it's called the early bird. Years ago, I should say, decades ago, when I worked at the Department of State, every morning I would get a photocopied version of the early bird, which was a publication by the Department of Defense, and they essentially went through a dozen or so of the major newspaper's editorial pages, photocopied the editorial of the newspaper, and photocopied the op-ed, and distributed it to all of the policymakers within town. No one ever went and sat at their desk and had a cup of coffee and read the editorial page. 
because you can't be a policymaker and, and reading the newspaper at your desk. They read it in the elevator, they read it walking down the hallway, and they read it as they were heading off to various meetings. So it was what they read first thing in the morning, the things that they read were 900 words or less, and it helped them think about, helped to shape how they approached the issues that they would be dealing with all day. So, in 900 words or less, you have to be brilliant, provocative, and persuasive. Mina, when do you plan on writing your first op-ed? I don't know, maybe when I graduate? I mean, I read op-eds in the New York Times and the Washington Post all the time, and they always seem as if they're written by the experts with a lot of experience. I figure I should at least get my degree first. Well, maybe, but start practicing now. Start writing your op-eds now, because you'll find that you'll be required to write this op-ed, or you'll have an opportunity to write an op-ed a lot sooner than you think. First off, you'll probably be working for some amazing senior professional next summer or next year after you graduate, and you'll realize that most of the first, second, and third drafts of these brilliant op-eds that you read in the newspapers are written by young professionals. The senior professionals will have an idea, they'll call the young professional into their office, they'll kick around the idea, and then they'll say, hey, how about you do a first draft of that op-ed? And then I'll tidy it up, put my name on it, and get it published in a major international <laughs> newspaper, or major newspaper. So you'll probably be needing to get your head around how to be brilliant, persuasive in 900 words or less a lot sooner than you might think. You're also going to want to establish your own reputation as a public advocate, as an expert. And there are many places to do that. We all think New York Times, Washington Post, the LA Times. But the reality is every university newspaper has an op-ed column. A lot of the second and third tier or local newspapers, all of the local newspapers, have op-ed columns. There's lots of places or lots of opportunities for you to express your view as an expert or as an advocate in 900 words or less. Identify some of those, practice writing op-eds, get your op-eds published, and begin to build that momentum so when the opportunity or the need to publish in one of those newspapers that gets reproduced in the early bird comes along its way, you are prepared and you refine that skill. Orga. You said you'd love to write an op-ed. What would your op-ed be on? What issues in U.S. foreign policy do you want to influence? Well, I'm interested in conflict resolution, and given the recent nuclear deal with Iran, I'm really interested in U.S. policy going forward and what our relationship with Iran should look like. Are you going to approach this as an expert or as an advocate? Probably as an advocate. Being an expert or an advocate in the op-ed column is the first question that you have to decide even before you begin to put pen to paper. Most folks want to be an expert. They want to dispense wisdom. But the reality is only 15 or 20 percent of op-eds are actually written in the tone of an expert explaining something. It's almost always advocacy. Now it's experts who are writing these advocacy opinions, but there's this desire for there to be an edge. The rest of the newspaper is about expert information. That's what the reporters do. The reporters go, they gather up lots of information, they organize it logically, and they provide information and analysis to the readers of the newspaper. They do not provide advocacy. So this is the one page on the newspaper where there can actually be advocacy. Now sometimes there is a need for a well-known expert to simply explain the complicated nature of something. 
but that's very limited. And I emphasize this because most young professionals want to come in as an expert because an expert is neutral, doesn't have to take a side, can simply dispense wisdom. But really the op-ed page is looking for an advocacy edge. Once you've chosen your topic and which side you're going to argue, what do you think is the first thing you need to do when you start writing your op-ed? Well, when I read an op-ed or any news item, I just check the title and the first few lines. And if I'm not hooked, I move on. So I think you need to have a really catchy or intriguing title that will draw readers in and hook them in the first few lines and will keep them reading. Yes, Mina. Everybody has a short of an attention span as you do nowadays. <laughs> Either you're a policymaker reading your material in the elevator, or you're a policy shaper reading it on social media or on your smartphone, or you simply don't have time to weed through loads and loads of information. So you need a catchy title. It's all about marketing. You're marketing your idea. You're marketing the idea that you want to influence or change U.S. policy. And the first thing about marketing is a catchy title. The second thing is you need to have a hook on which to hang your argument. Folks will read the title and they'll read the first paragraph and then they'll momentarily pause to think about do I want to continue investing my scarce time in reading the next 850 words? And you want them in there on that first hook. So if we were thinking about Orga's issue of the Iranian situation and where do we go from here, there's essentially two directions we could go. We could go in the direction of there's a nuclear deal. Now is the time to embrace Iran as a partner in peace, as a strategic partner in the region, and let's go for a wholesale change in the relationship between the United States and Iran. The other is to say, well, we have a deal. We've boxed in their capacity on a nuclear weapon, but we still have many, many other issues where the Iranians are undermining U.S. strategic interests, and we need to maintain sanctions, we need to maintain a close eye, and we need to continue to maintain our rather assertive approach to how we interact with the Iranians in the Middle East. So one option for a title would be something along the lines of, okay, no Iranian bomb, now what? Does that mean you have to wait for an exciting or momentous event before you start writing? No. Start writing your op-eds now. It takes about two days to develop a carefully crafted op-ed. Now, of course, the obvious question is, well, if some event happens and you take out your pen and you carefully craft a brilliant op-ed over the course of two days and then you shop it around to newspapers, someone else will have already had a brilliant idea and had it published as an op-ed. So what you do is you start writing your op-eds now or when you see an event on the horizon or when you have an idea that you want to, to advocate for in order to influence or shape U.S. policy, you put pen to paper now, you develop it, and then you look at the foreign policy calendar and you see what events are coming up. Are there any anniversaries of important events? So for instance, with the Iranian deal, there are a number of op-eds already out there on this question. But there will be a monthly anniversary, there will be a quarterly anniversary, there will be something that the Iranians will do, either highly mischievous in the region, that then if your op-ed is along the lines of we need to continue to be assertive in how we deal with the Iranians and not sort of naive, or there will be something where the Iranians will be highly helpful 
to the Americans. And then that's when you put out your op-ed of now's the time to begin to change the dynamic of our relationship with the Iranians and embrace them as, as partner in peace. So you write your thoughts and then you wait for that event, that fact to occur. If you're working in the, in the world of transitional justice, there's always a trial that is opening, entering a new phase, concluding, waiting for a verdict at any one of the international tribunals. Those are great points to put out the op-ed on peace versus justice or the time for a reformation of the International Criminal Court or whatever your idea might be. You can see events coming down the horizon on the so-called foreign policy calendar. So be prepared for when those events come to have your op-ed to submit. So what are the key points that I need to make sure I put in my op-ed? Elisa, what do you think are the key points that Oregon needs to put in his op-ed? So it's an opinion piece. So I guess in order to get your point across, you probably need a strong position and a clear explanation of your policy recommendation. Yes. Most first-time writers fail to make a policy recommendation. They express their view on an issue, a great title, a hook, and they express their view, but they don't actually answer the question then of, okay, as a policymaker, what should I do in order to accomplish this objective? If we do want to continue to box in the Iranians, or if we do want to engage in them to change the nature of the relationship, okay, that sounds persuasive, but what do I do to make that happen? Okay, so I need to have a clear recommendation, but how do I justify my recommendation? This is a little bit of the tricky part. You have to do two things. The first is, you have to find a way, no matter what your recommendation is, to argue for change. Because if you write an op-ed that simply says, yes, the current administration has a thoughtful and well-reasoned policy, and that's the way it should be, uh, that's kind of boring. No one's going to publish that as an op-ed. So even if you do agree with the policy of the administration, but you want it to evolve it still needs to be in the tone of challenging the policy and then recommending how it can go one or two steps further. And so that's a very difficult balance to achieve. Because if you say, well, by and large, the policy is right, we just need to evolve it this way, again, that doesn't have enough edge to it. If you say that the policy is completely upside down and needs to be radically changed, then you just tend to be an extremist. And so you need to be somewhere to the left or to the right of the center, and you need to embrace that approach as you develop that, that op-ed. So if you do want a radical change, you acknowledge in one paragraph the value, the direction of the current policy that the administration, whatever administration it is, and then you explain why it's not going to succeed in accomplishing the objectives, that it's not going to protect American strategic interests, and this is what has to be done in order to change that policy so that American strategic interests are protected. And then secondly, you need to overwhelm your reader with logic. 900 words, it's probably seven or eight paragraphs. There's no appealing to emotions. Sometimes you can appeal to moral authority, but it's all about laying out a logical basis for protecting American strategic interests. Look through the newspapers. Almost all of the op-eds follow a very clear logical model and they're all about we need to modify or amend our approach in order to protect American strategic interests. It can be humanitarian, 
it can be military, it can be economic as a topic, but it all comes down to protecting American strategic interests. That is what U.S. foreign policy is about. And when you're trying to shape or influence U.S. policy, you do so by trying to accomplish that objective of American strategic interests, which is very real politique, but it's the nature of the editorial page. Orga, now that we've gotten most of the content written and you've overwhelmed me with logic, how should you end your op-ed? Well, I think if I can convince my reader to care about a subject, then I should follow that up and convince them to act. So I should encourage them toward some sort of specific goal or action. Yes, the op-ed, that last paragraph, must be linking your idea to action. If you're writing your op-ed and the audience is the President of the United States or the National Security Advisor, you want to call upon them to modify, amend, change the U.S. approach to the Iranians. My guess, at this particular moment in time, they haven't settled on which approach they're going to do. So you're calling upon them to make a decision on a particular approach and the approach that you recommend. You could also be writing your op-ed with Congress in mind. There will be a number of op-eds calling upon Congress to either reject the deal or to accept the deal, but there will be only a very few number of op-eds which will be saying, if you do accept the deal, do it in a way which you identify the future path of U.S. foreign policy. Is it collaborative or is it assertive vis-a-vis -vis the Iranians? And so you'll want to have a very clear population in mind. In the back of your heads, you're probably thinking the audience is the general population and it should be a write-your-congressperson type of op-ed. Op-eds are written so that you influence those that are the policy makers or the policy shapers, but through the notion that their constituents will be persuaded by your argument, and therefore they should be persuaded by your argument. The newspapers won't publish a call to action op-ed that says write your congressperson. You can pay them $25,000 to buy a quarter page on a different section and say this is why you should write your congressperson to change U.S. policy. But it's that same voice in the head of the policy shaper, are my constituents going to read this? Is it going to resonate with them? And are they going to expect me to act in accordance with this logical approach and this recommendation? So you really are writing it to the constituents in a way that will influence the policy shaper, be it White House or be it Congress. So once I've written it, um, I'm sure I will like my op-ed and I will understand it. But how can I tell if my op-ed is good enough to be submitted, but also easy enough for a wide audience to understand? Your parents are always dying to read something you've written. And now, as law students, finally you'll write something that your parents can actually understand. Send it to your parents, send it to your friends. They're your focus group, they're your test audience, they're the constituents that have opinions that talk about these types of issues. That's who you want it to be understandable to and who you want it to resonate with. So you want to test run it with your old friends from college and high school and with your relatives. Also share it with your law school buddies or your foreign policy buddies in your master's program or your undergraduate program, but they will line edit it for you. 
And that's not what you need. You need to know whether this resonates with the average population. And then you need to find two or three very close colleagues who share the similar approach that you have and one or two who don't share the approach that you have. And you want to have them read it and then have a conversation with them and see how that conversation evolves around the basis of this op-ed. Because that's what you want to happen inside the U.S. government. You want the senator to read the op-ed and then for her to pass it to her staff and say, put together something that accomplishes this objective. You want somebody in the National Security Council or the State Department to read this and then to have a conversation about it. So you want to see if your op-ed will generate the momentum to sustain a conversation about this particular issue. Because you influence U.S. policy in 900 words or less, but you don't actually make U.S. policy in 900 words or less. And so you want to see if there's enough information, enough logic, enough edge in your op-ed in order to spark a thoughtful conversation about the next steps in dealing with the Iranians. So, Paul, let's say Alyssa, Orga, and I use your advice and write a really fantastic op-ed, and we have our friends, families, and peers read it over. Since we don't have any credibility yet, how can we get someone at the paper to open the email and read our submission? As young professionals, there's a number of ways of getting your voice out there. The first is to find a senior professional and invite her or him to act as a co-author. And there are a number of ways of doing this. You want to do what we've talked about. You want to have your idea, you want to have a title, you want the hook, you want logic to back up your argument, you want a recommendation. And then you go to one of your mentors, a senior professional, and you start a conversation along these lines. 50-50 chance the senior professional will say, we should write an op-ed about that. If she doesn't, then you propose that you write an op-ed about that. And an hour and a half later, you have a draft of that op-ed. Because you've been working on it for two days, or, or maybe four or five, or, or maybe a week. But you've been working on it. You've been polishing it. There are a number of senior professionals that regularly publish op-eds. And many of them are highly open to mentoring young professionals. Find various ways in the next two or three years of your career to connect and build relationships with these senior professionals. The other way is to find a co-author. Some of the earlier op-eds that I drafted were me from the legal perspective and then with the co-author from the military perspective or the historical perspective. And oftentimes, if there are two voices that are combined, even if they're rather young professionals, or if it's a young professional and a senior professional who doesn't frequently write op-eds, but has some type of byline relating to their military association or, their, or, or where they teach history or the nature of their expertise, that can help grab the attention. There are also a number of regional newspapers which will pick up on particular issues or particular themes because the population in that region is focused on that theme. And that's a good entry point. Because you have the situation where the senior professionals are all gunning for those top 10 newspapers. And then there's a good 20 or 30 newspapers that are regional or more local that are looking for quality op-eds but aren't able to attract the attention of the most senior professionals. And those are more open to young professionals, in particular if it's on the theme that they're covering over the course 
of a number of months. You also want to be highly, highly professional and highly, highly responsive. We've talked about this in an earlier podcast about adding three to five years to your professional experience. You're only young in your own mind. When you put pen to paper, when you overwhelm people with logic, when you have thoughtful and impressive policy recommendations, it doesn't matter how old you are. Your age does not go on your byline on the op-ed column. It's your 900 words and then your name and then some professional association. So you want to interact with the editorial board as if you were a mid-career professional, as if you had added three to five years to your professional age. So which newspapers are the best ones to get published in? Your ultimate objective should be the New York Times as the newspaper of the nation, the Washington Post as the newspaper of the foreign policy making community, and then your quote-unquote local paper. If you're from New England, it's the Boston Globe. The Midwest, it's the Chicago Tribune. California, well, I'm from San Francisco, so I'd say the San Francisco Chronicle, but also the Los Angeles Times is important. Christian Science Monitor will pick an issue and will be heavily engaged over time on it. And then you have more local or business-oriented communities. And then, of course, there's the Wall Street Journal. There are also a number of opportunities which exist today which did not exist even a few years ago, and those are the blogging possibilities, the Huffington Post and other common blogs that deal with foreign policy issues. You still want to go with the main newspapers and have those as your objective. And then you look to the blogs, you look to the online magazines, you look to those news sources that cater to the foreign policy crowd. With that, I'll wish you luck. I'm looking forward to reading your op-eds in the near future. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you would like to know more, please follow us on Facebook and Twitter or on our website, pilpg.org. If you have a tea or discussion suggestion, let us know on Twitter with hashtag tea with PILPG. Until next time, this is Tea with PILPG, brewing excellence around the world.